Well, welcome to Power for the People here on WERU. I'm in the habit of saying good morning. This is Power for the People, but it's actually afternoon this time because we're on a new time frame. Uh, This is January 22nd, and Power for the People, of course, is intended to help Mainers to take control of their energy futures and their energy budgets. Uh, the guest today, and the top well, the guest today is Paul Carey, who is the owner of Northwind's Stove and Fireplace. And so the topic here is, in fact, uh, devices and safety and fuel, all things uh, wood stoves and biomass, if you will. Um, but uh, hang on for that, because I do have uh, some important news from Efficiency Maine. I had the director of Efficiency Maine on last month, uh, but this hadn't been announced yet. So the rebates, as of January 1st, have been doubled for air source heat pumps. And listeners of this program will know that I'm a big fan and proponent of uh, air source heat pumps. Uh, I've got two myself. Um, And so the rebates have been doubled from $500 per device to $1,000 per device, and they cost on the order of $3,000. So you now have the opportunity until this rebate uh, is changed, and we don't know when that might be, to, uh, in effect, get a third off on your first uh, model. The second model, the second device you install it uh, has been doubled as well to $500. So I just wanted to pass along that information because that is important. Uh, But that does lead, actually, interestingly, uh, into uh, the guest today, Paul Carey from Northwind's Stove and Fireplace, and the topic, because uh, in in my case, I put in two air source heat pumps and completely eliminated my fossil fuel use. But I also have a wood stove uh, because I'm a Mainer, and uh, sometimes the power goes off and air source heat pumps run on electricity. And so uh, to me, you know, just being prepared... Uh, and being energy independent is impossible, is, sorry, is important. Uh, so, Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for coming in from uh, from uh, Route 1A in Ellsworth. Thank you for having me. So, again, he's the, he's the owner of, uh, of Northwind Stove and Fireplace, uh, and that uh, operation has been there for, sorry, let me look at the, or you can just tell me if you want. Since 06. Since uh, 2006, but Paul has been in the business uh, since 1988, so uh, he knows his stuff. And I'm glad to have you on board. Uh, So tell us a little bit more about yourself, and then tell us a little bit about uh, Northwind's, your business. Uh, Well, thank you. I'm originally from Waterville, Maynard. Lived here all my life. So am I. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, uh, I graduated from the University of Maynard Farmington with a science degree in 84, and four years later ended up as the store manager of the Black Soap Shop down in Waterville. And from there, I've been in the industry ever since. Uh, much training, many trade shows, installations, managing. So I've, this has been my this has been my life mm-hmm. for the last thirty plus years. Well, having lived in the Bangor area for a while, there was a black stove shop there. There was at one point. I, I would was there is the one in Waterville still there? Uh, black stove shops as such don't exist anymore. They they were uh, they expanded to a total of five stores. Uh, the one it was originally in Brewer on South Main Street, and then, oh, that's right. I then they, that. yeah, then they moved. Uh, he bought uh, Ray Monacchio and Candy, who owned the business, bought the um, shop that's over across from the Olive Garden in Bangor now. Uh, several years ago, a company uh, came in and bought them all up along with Art Bannister's store's uh, finest kind out of Portland and I think it was Brunswick. And, uh, and they renamed it Finest Hearth. They opened one in Ellsworth over by Jordan Snack Bar. I worked for them for about a year uh, before I went off on my own. Uh, they've since reached their demise, so mm-hmm. those, are, those are all gone. Some, some other people have taken over some of those stores. 
Mm, okay. All right. Well, good. You know, always interesting to know what the what the changes are in the business from that context. So, uh, so today the goal is again to, is to talk about the types of devices that are out there, uh, the fuel sources that are out there, uh, and it's certainly very important to talk about safety uh, because every now and then you do hear something happened and somebody's house burns down. Uh, so, um, so uh, we're uh, we're going to explore a number of different topics along that line, and we'll see uh, how how uh, how the calls go, and uh, and and let the call, the program evolve uh, in that manner. So let's just go. Uh, let's just uh, open the phones up now for anybody who wants to call. The number here is four six nine zero five zero zero, and we'll start start talking about the various topics that we want to talk about, and uh, take your calls and work them in uh, as they come in. So does that sound sound good, Paul? It does. All right. So uh, let's just start off with talking about the the comparison of types of supplemental heating devices that are out there. Uh, well, of course, our focus is on solid fuels. So we have wood stoves and uh, pellet stoves uh, as a hearth shop. We also deal with um, what we call hearth gas appliances, which would include fireplaces and gas inserts. And So, uh, so you guys sell those as well? As, yeah. Yes, all, all three types. Um, and, and they all have their pros and cons and places in people's heating scheme, uh, certainly aesthetics and um, uh, protection from when the power goes out, as you mentioned. Uh, fuel costs is also important. Uh, more and more we're seeing people heat houses with zone heating where they're using various appliances in, in different rooms to achieve a heating array that used to be done almost solely with uh, central heat systems. And and um, air source heat pumps, for example, can fit into that equation. Absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, so um, efficiency main will say. I mean, let's just pursue that just for a second. Efficiency main will tell people to turn a heat pump on and leave it on all winter and don't mess with it. Don't try to turn it up and down and all that because it takes time for it to uh, to do its thing and and, and raise the temperature. Uh, so if your if your main fuel source is is say wood, mm-hmm. uh, and my next door office mate uh, at Thomas College. Uh, heats mostly from wood, but he also has a, hair, uh, a heat pump. Uh, I would think that the, the best way to do that would be to set the heat pump at, at a temperature less than where you're comfortable, shall we say. Run your wood stove uh, to be comfortable, which means that the air source heat pump wouldn't run until, say, sometime at night or early in the morning. That, does that make sense to you? That does make sense. And I think uh, the other area where um, many of, of my customers who have heat pumps and use them as uh, substantial or primary heat sources still turn to alternatives, whether it's wood or, in some cases, uh, for their own purposes, gas. Uh, because there are times when the heat pump is just um, when it gets very cold, and I'm not an expert in heat pumps, as uh, you probably are, but uh, my understanding is that the efficiency and the effectiveness drops at some of the lower temperatures that we experience. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom uh, from the manufacturers that is that a heat pump will work to 15 or 20 below because there's still technically heat out there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a heat pump is just a refrigerator, basically, uh, running backwards. It can find that heat and, and bring it into your house. But as you say, it certainly is less efficient. So, you know, in my case, uh, the previous owner of my house uh, burned on the order of 1,000 gallons of oil a year. I uh, can't speak to what kind of temperature she ran it at, but that looking back at the records, that's what she spent. Uh, that means, actually, at the time I bought the house, that was about $4,000 a year. Uh, today's prices is maybe twenty five hundred, and the increase in my heat bill for two heat pumps is six or seven hundred dollars. So I mean I'm saving more than two thousand dollars a year uh, mm-hmm. by using heat pumps. 
Uh, that's that's the good news. But you're absolutely right that uh, that they become less efficient, um, and and therefore it's going to cost a little bit more as the temperature drops. I have experienced a few times when the heat pumps weren't doing their job. And, you know, my wood stove is mostly for backup, uh, but when it gets cold, I do use that for supplemental heat. And so that uh, that does matter. If I was using, if I was heating primarily with wood, then the air source heat pump would be the backup, not the other way around. And and so, you know, either one makes sense depending on how one's house is laid out and what their, what their strategy is. One question I have is you do see um, these little fireplace lookalike electric devices and maybe you don't sell those but do you have any opinion on those uh, uh, we don't do a lot with them in our climate uh, they are generally decorative most of them have resistance electric heating which of course is expensive uh, they're not designed as primary heat sources they might have a, a 5,000 watt heater built into them that sort of thing so, so not something that do you that people need to think about as being a major no. a major opportunity for them then no not at all and I had uh, in preparation for coming here I've done some uh, gone back to my roots as it were and looked at current prices versus efficiencies and cost of fuel to get a a relative range of cost per million BTUs for some of the different things that we work with. Uh, I, I confess that my area of weakness, again, is heat pumps, so perhaps you can fill in that with what we'd expect in this climate for the cost per million BTUs be uh, for the electricity to run a heat pump. Um, I am looking at, and there, there are some assumptions, obviously, that come into this that are important, and the assumptions can make a big difference into what your costs are. So, uh, for example, the assumption of what are you paying for firewood, or if you're cutting your own, you know, what are the relative costs? Uh, and the efficiencies, the relative efficiencies of the appliances are critical. So, for example, when we look at wood stoves, if we were looking at a stove uh, made back in the 70s or early 80s before the newer, more efficient, cleaner burning standards came in, um, we were estimating back then without the test parameters that we work with today that those stoves were relatively close to 50% efficiency. So if you take uh, mixed hardwood at 22 million BTUs per cord, uh, $260 a cord at 50% efficiency, you're looking at about 2364 $23.64 per million BTUs of heat. If you look at a modern wood stove that may be 75% efficiency, and I have some EPA numbers uh, for some products that are more than that, so that's certainly a realistic number, uh, that drops to $15.76 per million BTUs. So huge differences depending on uh, not just the, your cost of the fuel, but also, of course, the relative efficiency of the appliance. Uh, if we look at, at pellet stoves, again, um, looking at $300 a ton for pellets, which is a good quality. That's on the higher end of the cost of pellets. You'd be looking at, uh, with an 80% efficient pellet stove, 2287 per million BTUs. That could drop to 2033 if it was a 90% efficient stove. Um, when I looked at fuel oil, um, I came up with an, with an 80% efficient furnace, and that, of course, would be a more modern furnace. I know there's some higher, but many of the older ones are lower than that. You'd be looking, I have $25.36, um, LP gas is one where the price is much more variable because it depends a lot on consumption, whether you own your own tanks, things like that. So th this, this number may not be relevant to people. They really have to look at their own situation, what they're paying for fuel. 
but if they're paying $2.50 a gallon for propane um, with an 80% efficient appliance, that would be $34.15. That's probably about as high in efficiency as you would see in the hearth industry with, with the fireplaces and gas stoves that we work with. And depending on the efficiency measurements uh, that you use, it could be less than that. Obviously, there are some propane appliances that are 90% or better. Um, there are some changes going on in my industry in terms of how efficiencies are being measured and reported. Looking for a more consistent, uh, consumer-oriented uh, data uh, because in the past, it's always a lot of it has been self-reported in ways that may be skewed. All right. So, and uh, I don't have numbers off the top of my head for uh, an air source heat pump, so uh, I didn't do that kind of research. Uh, but I think uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm correct that there's a little calculator device on the Efficiency Main website that lets you plug numbers in for prices and things like that, and come back up with. Uh, with those kinds of numbers. And uh, and typically, wood and air source heat pumps are at the cheap end of the range, and LP, as you've just said here, is at the expensive end of the range. So mm-hmm. so LP, again, my personal bias, uh, it's, it's not, not just my personal bias, but, I mean, fossil fuels are an issue, uh, mm-hmm. something that eventually uh, we've got to get off of, and it's not, uh, I mean, I try to avoid the climate change discussion on this course because I want to keep it focused on energy, but bottom line is, I mean, sooner or later, fossil fuels are finite, are going to run out, and if we don't have alternatives, we're all going to go back and live in caves. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that, that uh, you know, the, 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 that's just a reality that we need to keep in mind, that we need to have, we need to have alternatives. Well, and to talk about the, uh, the carbon cycle and how biomass stoves fit into that, the uh, the reported CO2 released from some of the sources that I've looked at for wood is similar to coal, which is on the higher end of some of the fuels. So if you look at um, uh, natural gas is touted as having uh, a much lower CO, probably about half that of coal, of, of CO2 output per given amount of, of heat. Uh, wood is closer to coal. However, the um, wood is a is part of our carbon cycle. So as long as we're growing as much wood mass as we're cutting down and burning, then ultimately we should be looking at a carbon neutral environment. Essentially, I, I've always looked at wood as one step removed from solar energy. So that the uh, the arguments that have been made that you know we're we're burning the wood and we're putting all that air and all that carbon dioxide into the air, of course, is uh, is only Valid as it's related to, are we creating, doing it in a sustainable way? Yeah, I think a sustainable yeah. way is really the key yeah. there. And yeah. let's come back and explore that in just a second. But sure. just to make sure, uh, they, everybody's on the same page with us. The guest today is Paul Carey from North Wind Stove and Fireplace uh, in Ellsworth. Uh, our phone number is 469-0500, and we're here to talk about all things wood stovey. Uh, and especially we will get to, in not too long, we'll get to the safety issue to make sure that we do cover that. Uh, today is January 22nd, and so if you're listening today, we are taking calls uh, at that number. Uh, in the event that this program is rebroadcast, because this is a timeless uh, issue, the safety of wood stoves and that sort of thing, uh, if you know, it's not uh, January 22nd, uh, then, then we would not be taking any phone calls, just so that everybody is on the same page with us. So look forward to hearing your questions. So, uh, so on, the, on the issue of CO2, the, the key is really sustainability. 
Uh, we are doing a reasonable job of sustainability in the state of Maine. I believe so. Uh, if, uh, if somebody cuts firewood and then they build a Walmart there, that's, uh, that's the definition of unsustainable relative to CO2 uptake. But part of the issue is that if you've got a mature tree, the, that tree has probably uh, got kind of a stable biomass, which means it's not putting on more wood, which means it's not taking up quantitative, it's still mm-hmm. breathing CO2 in and out, but it's not actually sequestering any uh, any CO2. And so the key is there, if you've got young trees uh, growing up behind where you cut the other trees, you might even be taking up more CO2 than you burned uh, to begin with. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, it's an interesting question. It's a debate within the scientific community. Uh, the state of Maine legislators in Washington uh, have, I think they actually have a bill that has been, that is in law now saying that uh, that biomass is carbon neutral. Um, and I think from the economic perspective in the state of Maine, it's not an unreasonable position to be in. But it is somewhat still somewhat controversial. There's no question about that. But I think I think we're kind of on the same page. Well, and and uh, it's interesting. Uh, oftentimes, of course, people bring their own biases to an argument. The I had heard a show on public radio a while back where uh, some students were presenting the argument that, well, if you cut down a mature tree and you burn it, um, that's fine. But then you're going to plant a new tree, and it will take 40 years for that tree to regenerate, and we don't have 40 years. Um, I found a fallacy with that argument in the sense that we don't cut down a tree and wait 40 years for it to regrow. We take mature wood out of a woodlot, and if we take three cords of wood out of a six-acre woodlot, and then over the course of that year, we add the equivalent of three cords of mass to the growing trees that are in that woodlot, then essentially we're regenerating that mass at the same rate at which we're taking it. And I I think the issue there is that... uh you know th- that's that's not an unreasonable position to have when the when the seedlings are 6 inches tall they're not taking up a lot mm-hmm. of co2 but when they get to be fast growing m- teenage mm-hmm. trees yep. then they they may be taking up more than that original tree was yes. so you know it's uh, that's part of the argument right yeah. and and uh, and of course with a uh, with a healthy woodlot you have trees in all stages of growth that's right. the almost the definition. That's right. And certainly, I mean, if you think about the ultimate, uh, if there was such a thing, very many old growth stands in the state of Maine, that old growth stand probably isn't quantitatively taking up any CO2 anymore. So, yeah. you know, that, that's the that an, imp- an important perspective to to have. All right. So uh, so you mentioned aesthetics a minute ago. I think uh, let's, let's just chat fireplaces just for a minute because some people are just adamant that they like fireplaces or they like fireplace inserts. If somebody comes to you and says, uh, I've got a fireplace, I want to make sure it's safe because I want to keep burning wood, uh, tell me where that conversation might go and where your recommendation might be. Uh, well, of course, it, it's always driven, driven by the customer because it depends on what their goals are. They're not my goals. Uh, but if they're looking for an increased efficiency while still being able to enjoy a real wood fire, then with a fireplace, it would be a, a generally a wood insert, which would fit into the fireplace. Uh, the installation requirements of that generally involve running a stainless steel sleeve up the chimney to the top, uh, both for uh, safety and for performance reasons, which we can get into in more detail. The, um, but that takes, that takes an open fireplace that the government did a study many years ago that, that showed that fireplaces in general, general were somewhere between 10% efficient and minus 10% efficient. 
which is a number that surprises some people. But, of course, we can lose more heated air up the chimney when the fireplace is not functioning than we ever gained from it when it was. So by putting in an appliance that is now 75% or better in efficiency, we're dramatically improving that fireplace. And we're also stopping the heat loss of a dormant fireplace. Now, people may say, well, I shut the damper when I'm not using it. Well, that's fine. You go into bed, you have a bed of coals, you can't close the damper. So um, maybe you add fireplace doors or maybe you just leave it open and close it in the morning. But all those things have a significant impact on a home's efficiency system. And people that say they remember to close the damper, I bet, rarely <laughs> remember. That's yeah. that's part of the issue. Yeah. So so tell me why a stainless steel liner uh, improves, the, improves the performance. It could be for a wood stove or it could be for a, ch- a chimney situation. The Well, with a fireplace, you generally, the fireplace, if it's built properly, the flue is sized to the um, to the size of the fireplace. It's not designed for a high-efficiency wood wood stove system. So it's generally a larger flue, usually at least an 8 by 12, often 12 by 12 or 12 by 18. We deal, we deal with three things. We deal with uh, safety, codes, and performance. Uh, safety and, and codes overlap. They're not identical, but they certainly overlap dramatically. So starting with codes, the fire code says if it's an inside chimney, we cannot vent a solid fuel appliance into a chimney that is more than three times the cross-sectional area of the outlet of the appliance. So in English, uh, most inserts have a six-inch flue collar, which is about 28 and a half square inches. If we were putting that into a 12 by 12 flue, uh, 144 square inches. They're actually usually a little smaller than that. But the point is, code says we must leave that down to a, a more appropriate size. If it's an outside chimney, that ratio changes to two times the cross-sectional area because outside chimneys are colder and they don't draw as well. Uh, the, the code reasons for that really come back to the performance portion of this, which is when you take the heat from a appliance with a small outlet and you allow it to expand into a large cavity it slows and cools and the chimney is ultimately the engine that runs the stove so if we don't have sufficient draft by warm buoyant gases moving through that vent system then the performance of the stove suffers now that can be uh, customer complaint issues such as it spills smoke I have a hard time getting a fire going things like that but it also of course affects efficiency issues because it's the airflow and the heat generated in the stove that allows it to burn the smoke the the half of the energy in wood that's the gases that we want to burn before we send it up the chimney Right, certainly makes sense, and and of course, if you have a uh, uh, an insert, then uh, then that's going to, in addition to lowering the uh, the volume or the diameter of the chimney, that device itself is uh, maybe even airtight, right? And so so relative to airflow passively yes. when you're not using the device, you've you've got a big gain there. Yeah, pretty pretty close. Uh, we don't use the term airtight anymore. It's an old uh, okay. it's an old fashioned term from when we had the fishes and the all nighters where you, they literally were. Uh, con- controlled combustion appliance would be a, an appropriate. They're, they're not uh, today's appliances. Uh, while they certainly can be closed down substantially to to very little, uh, they're designed to not allow us uh, or to help not allow us to smolder fuel the way we used to in the 70s. Mm. So kind of the progression of wood stoves for anybody that's not as old as I am was back in the, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the early 60s. Stoves were cast iron boxes that were just bolted together. Air came in pretty much every gap. They weren't airtight. They didn't have baffles either. Uh, they were basically improved fireplaces. Uh, ben Franklin's Franklin Fireplace, the, the originator of that concept, and then Glenwood's and Atlantic's and other things that came into play. 
with the oil embargo in the 70s, uh, all of a sudden, uh, longer burn times and increased efficiency became very important. And so people, anybody with a garage and a welder started making wood stoves out of, uh, often out of steel, welded construction, airtight spin draft controls. You could smolder a fire in there for 18 hours. Uh, it was great for heating your house. We had a lot of chimney fires. We certainly had a lot more smoke pollution than we did with the previous stoves. While they weren't efficient, they at least tended to burn hotter. So, you know, we, we created that problem, and then this, the the result of that, of course, was, as it often is, government regulation saying, wait a minute, now we need a solution to this. And that's where the first EPA standards came in. They went into effect in 1988, and uh, we drove uh, that drove about two-thirds of the manufacturers out of the industry at that time. They weren't prepared to make the financial commitments necessary to meet these uh, much cleaner standards, but we took stoves that were putting out 50 or 60 grams per hour of smoke and we brought it down to a regulated standard of less than eight and a half grams per hour. Mm, that, that kind of imp- improvement. Yep. Yeah. yeah. In- interesting. And, yeah. and, of course, now, which we can talk about when you're ready, is uh, we're on the cusp of a, uh, or in between, I should say, a new set of EPA standards. They hadn't re- revisited it since 1988. Um, the, um, the, the new standards actually came in two phases. The first phase uh, kicked in in 2015. That was pretty much transparent to most people because most of the industry had already met that. Without getting into the nuances, is roughly four and a half grams per hour. So this is a standard mostly for air emissions. Uh, For air emissions, right? I mean, the 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 side benefit to the consumer is if you're burning the smoke in the stove, yes, you're reducing the emissions in your chimney's cleaner, but you're also getting the energy that would otherwise go up the chimney as unburned fuel. So we. The, the 2015 phase of this two-part standard uh, reduced that eight and a half down to about four and a half, uh, but it was it was it, it didn't cause a big impact in the industry because Washington State and uh, Colorado already were at those levels, and therefore most of the industry had already achieved that. So that was basically codifying into national law what was already being done in the industry. Uh, the second part, which is being fully enforced as of May of this year, dropped that standard to uh, two grams per hour. Uh, it also split the standard into uh, crib wood, which was the original tests were done with crib wood, which was uh, uh, rectangular blocks of kiln dried fur in a certain pattern. That was the test standard. Um, obviously, not real world, but. That was the standard. You need to standardize it somehow, right? Right. Now, there's, uh, they, they split this test down and say, okay, if you're doing it with crib wood, you need to be under two grams per hour. Uh, but we'll also, they're also developing a cordwood standard to try to achieve a more real-world number, and they've given that a little more leeway. It's two and a half grams per hour. Mm. And so, so uh, presumably, if, you're buy a, if you buy a stove that was built... After, I mean, so the the standard goes in two thousand in May of two thousand twenty. Right. When did, did the, when did the stove have to be built? Um, the stove has to be built before May of twenty twenty, and it has to be sold before May of twenty twenty. There was no sell through provision in that. So, as a dealer, for example, and manufacturers, they they couldn't wait until uh, February. And all right, now we're going to start producing twenty twenty stoves because there needs to be a sell through period. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that most dealers, myself included, have been working through for the last couple of years, just moving through older product, and uh, the manufacturers uh, have been coming out with new product, of course. Hmm. 
So uh, I do have a comment uh, or question here from uh, from a listener, but just to uh, to uh, uh, make sure we know where we're at here, um, we're talking with Paul Carey from Northwoods North Wind Stove and Fireplace about all things wood stoves, and uh, where we've nudged into the safety issue, and we'll continue mm-hmm. to talk about that. But the comment from the listener is: uh, Have you heard of insurers dropping people uh, or denying insurance coverage? depending on how they're using wood stoves? Um, that, that's a, a larger topic, but we'll touch on it. The, um, uh, the first largest issue for insurers seems to be rental units. They really don't want wood stoves. And some, some make a distinction between short-term and long-term rentals. Others just don't want a wood stove in a, in a home that you're renting. Which, uh, which frankly makes sense as a former I, landlord myself. I can appreciate that. Not ev- not everybody should be able to use a match. I mean, it's just right. you know, safety is important, and you d- you don't have as much control over how it's being used. Uh, the um, generally, I can't say that I've run into insurance companies dropping people because they have and they're using a wood stove um, as a as a substantial heat source. Uh, in my experience. They may send a questionnaire out that they're asking the, the people to, to complete. They may ask. They may have somebody uh, go out and inspect the property and inspect the installation. Um, if you call an insurance company and you're asking, telling them that you'd like to put in a wood stove and asking them if there are any issues, um, they may suggest that you have it installed or tell you that they would like you to have it installed by a licensed person. Uh, which is an interesting statement in the state because uh, under our current laws, there are there is no license requirement for people that do what I do. Uh, there's certainly um, uh, standards that are in place that should be followed, but the state does not have a license requirement for that. The solid fuel license in the state of Maine applies to central heat systems. Mm, okay, so so you act, you haven't run into a situation where somebody has been denied then. Um, I haven't run into a situation where somebody who already has a stove has been denied. I've had people come to me and say, I called my insurance company. They told me I couldn't have one. Hmm. Um, insurance companies don't like wood stoves. Right. Yeah. No, uh, I, I, and, and so, uh, you know, how if they – what I can't answer is would the answer have been different if they called the insurance company and said, I put in a wood stove. Do you want to come look at it? Hmm. Um, but, of course, I can't advise people as to that, but maybe their insurance agents can. All right. I had a curious situation in Waterville where what I, I did have it installed by a fireplace guy. He put in the liner, actually extended the chimney a little bit, and I called up the fire department assuming they wanted to come inspect, and they said, no, we don't want them. Uh, so it's, yeah. you, you never know. Uh, at, at my place on the lake, the insurance company sends me a questionnaire every year and says, uh, thou shalt clean your chimney twice a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, which perhaps lets us gets us to the point of talking about chimney cleaning. Uh, but first, just let me give the phone number one more time for if you have a, a question for Paul Casey. Uh, the number is 469-0500 uh, if it's January 22nd. And if you're listening to this program on another date, of course, then it is recorded, and so no phone calls will be taken. So, so chimney cleaning. Uh, the, the general industry standard, because today's stoves, one of the benefits of today's stoves putting out so little emissions is chimneys do stay much cleaner. We don't have the, uh, you know, back in, again, back in the uh, 80s, I, I knew people that could have a chimney fire every four weeks. It was just <laughs> incredible. The, uh, under the, the new standards, chimneys do stay a lot cleaner. The, excuse me, the industry uh, recommendation is that chimneys be cleaned uh, excuse me, be checked at least annually and cleaned as needed uh, by 
presumably by somebody who's qualified to inspect them and make sure they're clean. I know some home, many homeowners may do their own, but at some points it may be uh, it may be proper to bring in somebody that's professionally trained in those those areas. So I have a couple of questions on that. Is there uh, can you give us any generalization on uh, so once a year? Uh, is is different if you're burning six cords of wood a year versus half a cord a year. Can can you can you generalize to how often you should check it depending on the amount of wood that you burn? I think the uh, the best general the best generalization may be to uh, look at your experience with the system. If it's a new system, you may want to check it after a month, after three months, and of course at the end of the season. Uh, or have it checked again, depending on your competence in that area. But if it's it, if you if it's a new system and you're not sure, you know, it, obviously the 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 wood that you're burning, how dry is it? Well seasoned wood, is it a newer appliance or is it an older one? Is the chimney sized appropriately to the stove? Is it an interior warm chimney, or is it an outside cold chimney? I mean, creosote is wood smoke that's condensed on a cool surface. So the warmer the flue, the closer the flue size is to the outlet of the appliance, the quicker the flue gases move through it, the less creosote forms. Right. So so what about, so so um, I've got two wood stoves, actually. I mean, one at the lake, which is just vented into, I guess you call it metal bestest pipe, mm-hmm. and I clean that myself. Yes. Uh, in Waterville, at, at my house, I've got a, a stainless steel liner in what used to be the chimney from the boiler, uh, which I don't clean myself. Uh, and it seems to me, having watched them install that liner, you'd, you'd, you'd clean it differently. Can you well, generalize the, on the, that? Well, uh, the, the stainless steel, because metal bestus or other brands of stainless steel chimney, we say metal bestus like you say Kleenex when you want a tissue. Oh, it's a, g- oh it's a brand name. It's I did, a brand name. Yeah, yeah, yeah metal bestus is a brand name, but okay. it's one everybody uses just like they use Kleenex. Yeah. Um, Skadoos. Yep. The exactly. Uh, the first recommendation, if you're cleaning your own, is uh, that you should use a polyester brush. Metal brushes deposit iron filings on the stainless steel and can promote some corrosion. So, so I do. That's what I have. Good. Uh, the uh, the same type of brush would no- normally be used in a round stainless steel liner. Now, the uh, many of the professional chimney sweeps now have spinning equipment. They actually have rods with uh, button locks so they don't come apart, and uh, the end has um, perhaps wire, plastic-covered wire loops, and they put it on a drill, and very flexible rods. They run it up and down a section of the chimney, add another rod, keep going, but they're actually spinning up and down the chimney. It has several advantages. One, of course, uh, is it allows that, that very flexible system to go around elbows and bends that can be very difficult with rigid rods. They probably don't go into a right-angle turn very successfully. Uh, I'm, I'm not, my, not, not what I do for a living, uh, but I think if it's a rounded elbow, in many cases they could, to mm. be honest with you. Okay. Um, they are very flexible. The um, um, So th- there's that. And then, of course, uh, uh, the other thing that we wanted to talk about was creosote catalysts. And there are many brands out there. Uh, chimney sweeping log you had mentioned. Uh, when when the ch- chimney sweeping log first came out and was being advertised on TV as you don't need a chimney sweep, you just burn this log once a week or whatever the, the recommendation was, um, they were, uh, my understanding is they were made to change that advertising because it implied that you didn't need to sweep your chimney and it was incorrect. Uh, what a creosote catalyst does is it helps to break up the glazed creosote and turn it into a, a more powdery crystalline type of 
creosote that some some may fall out, but it can be more easily brushed out. It's very mm-hmm. difficult with any of the mechanical systems to brush out that heavy glaze. So creosote catalyst is the right term for something like that. I hadn't run into that before. Yeah, and and that because that's what it is. It's catalyzing the creosote right. into a different and basically makes it so it makes it easier for it to be for it to it, be cleaned. It does now. Yeah. Um, I know the many of the um, chimney sweeps will come to me for a product called ACS, anti-creosote. It's actually a liquid spray that can be sprayed on, on the coals or on the wood or you know before it's burned or it's just spayed right into the fire. Um, and they find that to be effective. I, I can't comment on the relative effectiveness of the different products, but everybody has their, has their favorite. Right. And so in your assessment, yeah. there, it, there is some advantage to use something like that then? Uh, if, if there's a creosote issue. Now, I've, I've been burning a modern wood stove, and uh, every year when I check the pipe, it's basically dust in there. Mm. So there would be no advantage in that application. The other thing people have to be uh, aware of is if they have a stove that's either catalytic or hybrid, which is just a way of saying it's part catalytic, part non-catalytic, uh, you want to make sure you're not using chemicals that are going to poison that catalyst. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. On the other hand, if the catalyst is functioning properly, you may not need a creosote catalyst. So uh, I don't know as I'd routinely recommend that just everybody go out and use them because I don't think it's necessary. Uh, but people have older stoves um, or perhaps their applications such that it's just not burning as clean as it should be able to. Because the best answer is to you know, have, more se- have better seasoned wood um, well, and that was where I was going to go yeah. next. So, again, we're talking with, with uh, Paul uh, Carey of North Winds uh, Stove and Fireplace in Ellsworth about wood stoves and safety, and we're talking about safety here at the moment. Uh, phone number here is 469-0500 if you have any questions uh, of your own. And so, so again, the safety uh, as it relates to the, the wood source. Uh, well, because the, the safety portion is if, you're, uh, if your wood is not properly seasoned. There's, there's a couple downsides to that. Uh, the safety portion of that would be if you're creating creosote, you're increasing, uh, not only putting more pollution into the air, of course, you're also increasing the chances of having a chimney fire if you get creosote buildup and that's not, not addressed. And chimney fires can be dangerous things. There's also uh, the other factor is efficiency because the amount of energy it takes to take liquid water and turn it into steam I remember from my chemistry days <laughs> in college, is it's an incredible, you know, the heat of vaporization, it's an incredible amount of energy. And where does that heat go? It goes up the chimney as waste heat. It's steam. It's going out the chimney. So ideally, now wood can be too dry for the purposes of burning in a modern wood stove. It just, it burns too quickly. It can burn faster than the stove is designed to burn those gases. So, you, you know, that can go the other way. The ideal moisture content is considered to be in the 18 to 20% range. Um, and there are very uh, relatively inexpensive, very inexpensive, actually, moisture meters to the point that some companies are giving giving them away with stoves now mm. uh, that you can you can use to check wood. I was aware of that, but I didn't know that they were relatively inexpensive. Uh, we have a caller on the line, uh, Frank uh, in Lemoyne. You are on the air. So, how often should you replace a metal bestest, uh, you know, chimney on the outside, obviously? Uh, it, it, there's no there's no predetermined life. A lot of it will depend on um, number one whether you know what some not all things are created equal. So there are some chimneys that are certainly better built than others, but they're all stainless steel uh, inner and outers. Um, if if the inner wall becomes perforated or corroded over time, 
then moisture can get into the insulation and it reduces the uh, the effectiveness of the insulation. It decreases the insulation value. So now, you know, the two-inch clearance that's required around that chimney may no longer be appropriate. Um, that can be hard to tell from just cleaning your chimney. I would take the interior of the image in the seam in between. Because I replaced this one. I've, I've used the same stove for 37 years. A Lang. Mm-hmm. I think it's a Scandinavian stove. Yes. And it heats the house well. I don't know how efficient it is. I know I'm warm. That's what counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, warm is good. Yeah, just a you know, straight shot. It was the stove that come out the back, throws it out the top. Chewing it up. If you burn it hot every day, you don't have to worry about creosote. You crank it open one time and, and let it roar for about 10, 15 minutes. The pipe blows. You take care of the creosote. Am I correct? Uh, well, that's not the that's not obviously the the recommended method because if what is it, the recommended? Well, the recommended method would be to uh, have actually clean it. If if you're building up more than an eighth of an inch of creosote, it would be to clean it. The reason it's not the recommended method is, and it's obviously worked for you, but uh, let's say somebody has, you know, maybe they have a quarter of an inch or three eighths of an inch or a half an inch of creosote built up in their chimney, and they use that method. Now they have a two, yeah, yeah. Now they have a two thousand degree raging fire in there and flames <laughs> spitting out the roof, and they're calling the fire department <laughs> to come save their house. So that's why it's not the recommended method. So how inefficient I wonder, is that stove? Uh, that old. That, that's, that's hard to tell. It, it's hard to tell, but the, but that's uh, from what you're describing to me. That's an older technology stove, meaning pre EP. It's, it's, it's a lamp. Right. It's, it's, Right, and, and I've and I've seen many Langs over the years. The um, uh, it would be a stove from that you know seventies, early eighties era that we estimated. We didn't have the test standards we do now, but the industry estimate was they were maybe fifty percent efficient as opposed to the seventy-five or eighty that a new stove is now. So certainly, you know, you have more emissions and more creosote, but it's also you're burning more wood for the same amount of heat. I use that and propane, you know, mm-hmm. small well and split it out. Yep. Anyways. All right, thank you. You're All welcome. Right. Thanks for being on the show. So uh, we started talking about catalytics, non-catalytics, that sort of thing, hybrid a few minutes ago. Yep. Uh, so types of burning appliances, let's uh, let's explore that here a little bit. Okay, so uh, staying with wood stoves, um, the uh, to describe, first of all, what catalytic, what the difference is between catalytic and non-catalytic, uh, stoves prior to the EPA standards were also non-catalytic, but we don't call them that. We call them pre-EPA stoves because we want to distinguish between a burn system that meets those standards and burns clean but without the use of a catalyst. And the way a non-catalytic stove works, air is brought into channels within the stove. As the stove heats up, the air moving through those channels uh, is also heating up. And then we're bringing that preheated air into the stove um, to feed the fire, but also into usually into the baffle area. You may look in a stove and see stainless steel tubes with holes in them. And, and what's happening is hot air is coming out as the smoke comes up from the fire. That hot air is being injected just by the pull of the chimney into the smoke stream, and you'll, you'll get a secondary burn. You'll see it floating in the baffle. There are other types that are non-catalytic where maybe it's a, a refractory chamber behind the, the fire back where you're not seeing that take place, but it's the same concept. A, so the concept is to raise the temperature of the smoke 
while introducing oxygen, because most of the initial oxygen was consumed down at the fire, obviously we need oxygen present. So by um, uh, by increasing the, the temperature of the air and we're, we're keeping the smoke hot enough to burn, we're adding oxygen, we get that secondary combustion. Now, a catalytic stove uses the opposite method of using a catalyst to lower the uh, temperature of reaction, the, the point at which the smoke will burn, from around 1,100 degrees down to maybe around 550, 600. So we get a stove up to temperature. All catalytic stoves have a bypass damper because when you're getting them going, this damper is open. We're letting the exhaust go directly up the chimney. Once we've achieved that initial temperature we want, we close the bypass damper. The smoke goes through the catalyst. Again, there's generally a method to introduce uh, some preheated air before it goes through the catalyst so that it doesn't matter how effective the catalyst is. If there's not enough oxygen present, it can't burn. And so then we get that secondary combustion at the catalyst. One advantage of a catalytic stove is once you get the catalyst lit off, you can slow the burn rate on the stove down, and as long as smoke is going through that catalyst, it's self-sustaining. Uh, that's actually self-sustaining a, in terms of the pollutants coming out. Uh, it, it, yeah. Exactly, it's being fed by the by the smoke. So, and as the smoke goes through the catalyst, it's burning. So, you no longer have to maintain a high temperature in the firebox in order for the result to be appropriate. The um, uh, one company that uses that to great success is Blaze King. You get a hot fire going, and you can close the fire once you have a bed of coals you can reduce the burn rate until essentially you're just producing smoke through the process of pyrolysis that's going through the catalyst, and it's burning very efficiently and very clean, but perhaps over a 24 or 30 or longer period of time, uh, putting out a consistent level of heat. Mm-hmm. Most, most stoves on the market are non-catalytic or a hybrid, which is essentially a non-catalytic stove where they throw a catalyst on top, to give it just a little, uh, to help clean up anything that's still there and perhaps meet some of these new tighter emission standards. Is, is there a replacement issue uh, for the catalyst or a maintenance for the catalyst? Uh, 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 both. Uh, uh, one of the things we mentioned earlier is you have to be careful what you burn. If you have a catalyst in a stove, um, you can poison that catalyst. You, you don't want to burn anything other than untreated wood and non-glossy newspaper to start a fire with. Uh, magazine paper, you know, the flyers you get in the mail. Of course, any painted or treated stuff could easily poison or tie up the platinum atoms in that ceramic honeycomb, and that's mm-hmm. no longer effective. Uh, catalysts do have a life. Um, they, they vary, but if you're taking proper care of the stove, probably six to ten years would be appropriate. Um, and is it expensive to replace them? Um, and, how, it, and how would you know? Uh, well, there's, uh, there's a couple of methods. Uh, as far as the cost to replace... Um, of course, it varies like any part for anything, but maybe two to two hundred and fifty dollars over you know over the course of ten years, so maybe twenty five dollars a year as an investment mm-hmm. would be um, something to keep in mind. The uh, there's the intuitive method, which is uh, it used to be once I got the stove up to the temperature and I closed the bypass damper and I uh, went outside and looked at the chimney, I didn't see any visible smoke, and now I do. So that's mm. that's kind of the intuitive method. Um, there are many stoves, especially some of the newer ones, that are coming with a probe thermometer located at the exit point of the catalyst that will give you a heat output range that will essentially tell you whether the catalyst is effective. So that mm. would be... Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so we're speaking with Paul Carey from Northwoods uh, Stove and Fireplace. 
the phone number here, you can probably sneak in one more call. It's 469-0500. And if you're listening on January 22nd, we're live and you can call. If you're listening on a, on a later date, uh, this is a recorded program. And, of course, no phone calls will uh, be possible at that. So, uh, and you also, uh, just some of the things that we've talked about and, and exchanged on emails, cast iron versus steel versus soapstone. How would people make that kind of choice? Um, partly it's aesthetics. Uh, steel, sto- steel stoves are very durable. Um, they're made out of, uh, today's modern steel stoves are made out of welded boilerplate steel, fire brick lined. Um, there's not a lot that can go wrong with that type of a system. The uh, cast iron stoves tend to be more ornate. Uh, have more features like well, Vermont Castings, for example, is famous for the, the top loading and the swing-out ash pan. Uh, soapstone has more thermal mass uh, if it's used as the firebox material. An example of that would be hearthstone. Um, so when you look inside a hearthstone soapstone stove, you're looking at the backside of the stone that the stove is made out of. And so you have all that thermal mass. They don't heat up as quickly, but they, they do hold the heat longer. Um, there are, there are a lot of things that drive the decision-making in a stove. That's probably uh, what we spend most of our time doing with customers is finding out what their heating needs are, what their uh, installation and application is like, what their aesthetic goals are, what features are important to them, whether it's just durability or uh, an ash pan or a top loading or side loading. So, so we, you know, we take all those features into account and help them find the stove that best needs their their uh, their needs that way. How about uh, how about cost? Uh, in in general, steel stoves are a little bit less than cast iron stoves. Soapstone stoves are would be a little higher in that category. Um, you know, a good medium size. You know, woods, good wood stoves today start at you know from a thousand dollars and go up to you know four thousand dollars or more. Um, but certainly there's a large range in that. It's a difficult question to answer. It's a lot, a lot like saying, how much does a car cost? Mm, right, I can imagine. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the bullets we exchanged uh, before the show was uh, considerations for the do-it-yourself installer. What, uh, what's your recommendation there? Um, well, the first, the first recommendation is uh, to make sure you have the manual for the stove. If it's a UL-listed stove, it has a label on the back. And if it has a label, there was a manual that was produced in conjunction with the listing of that stove that tells you as the owner or installer everything that you need to know to install it properly. Uh, the clearances from combustible walls, what methods exist, exist if any, for reducing those clearances, uh, the hearth requirements, how big it has to be, whether the hearth has uh, whether it is an insulation or a thickness value for the hearth. So all of that, all that information is incorporated in the manual, and every stove that's been tested is actually individually tested. So those, what's in the manual is, is not generic. It's, it's representative of that stove and what it takes. Uh, so it's important that you find the manual. Uh, if it's not a UL-listed stove, which would generally mean it was made you know, 35, 40 years ago or more because pretty much everything today has a UL listing. If it's not a UL-listed stove, then... To install it, we would fall back on the National Fire Codes. 
to return to an insurance question asked earlier, some insurance companies will insist that if you're going to put in a wood stove, it have a UL listing, that you not install a non- And if you buy one anywhere, if you buy an, it's going yeah, to be that way. Right. It's, it's installing a used stove that right, would be the problem. You, right. If you buy a used stove, you know, you bought it through Uncle Henry's or your fr- neighbor gave it to you, and it has no UL plate on the back and it's not a listed stove, then the National Fire Code, uh, NFPA 211, which... Uh, fire marshal in your town will have a copy. We have a copy. Uh, most good stove shops, even if you didn't sell the stove, would be happy to help you not burn your house down. You know, make make use of those sources. Um, but it would tell you, you know, again, generically what clearances because because that stove wasn't tested. Then the, you know the standards for those stoves are generally much more, and people get surprised. It's like, oh, I bought this stove used for five hundred dollars. I saved all this money. Yeah, but now if you don't want it out in the middle of the room, you're going to spend all this other money on putting up wall protection, and the floor protection has to be you know substantially larger than it would be for another stove. So you you want to look at the whole thing as a system before you make those types of decisions. Okay, and so that's any other uh, things for do-it-yourselfers to uh, keep oh, in mind? Oh, absolutely. The um, One of the things, uh, I, I look at many jobs, I look at many installations, and, and many of them have deficiencies. Um, so uh, the, the first thing is, if you don't know, ask. Find somebody, and, and not necessarily your neighbor that's been burning wood for 100 years. Mm-hmm. You know, find, find a professional in the industry or a code enforcement person in the town and, and ask those questions. The... One of the areas that has always concerned me the most is people that know that the stove has to be X inches off a wall and the hearth has to be X size will run a piece of pipe through a wood wall into a chimney and they don't know what to do there. They stick a little insulation around it and some tin foil. Uh, there are methods to get safely through that wall into the, into the chimney. Uh, some of them are outlined in the code book. There are UL-listed insulated thimbles that can go through that wall. Basically, what I tell people is if you have to start creating components of your own to install the stove, you should stop and, and get more information because the stuff required to safely install a stove has existed in this industry for decades. So you don't need to engineer and invent your own components to do it properly. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're, we're running short on time here with, uh, with Paul Carey of Northwind Stove and Fireplace. Uh, in Ellsworth, but uh, how about buying, handling, drying, storing firewood, um, those those sorts of issues? What kind of recommendations do you have for people? Pay somebody to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, Some people obviously cut their own wood. Uh, some buy it, cut, split, and delivered. Uh, some people will buy tree length and cut their own. One, one thing I do point out to people, if you're buying wood tree length, let's say you buy a cord of wood tree length for X amount of money, once you've cut it and split it, the stacked cord that you have is not the 4 by 4 by 8 128 cubic foot cord because you lose volume, and it's not because they didn't give you tree-length wood. So while you will still save money, it's not, oh, I saved you know half the cost of the wood because I paid half as much as I would have for a cut-split cord. So I, bl- I believe on average you'll lose about a third cutting and splitting it. Mm, that much, really? Yeah so, yeah, so you buy three cords, you end up with two cords cut and split and stacked. Uh, the most they, the recommendation is that wood should be stacked uh, to dry, you know, with the ends exposed, space between the rows uh, for at least a year before you're going to use it. My personal goal has been if I could have it stacked by Memorial Day and it didn't rain all summer, I could generally get through. Um, it was generally good wood by the fall, but obviously. And, and, and do you, would you recommend covering it? Uh, no. Um, 
Not, not directly. Uh, there was Vermont Castings 100 years ago, not quite, but they had come out with a uh, poster where they, they showed uh, essentially building a clear plastic roof over it with uh, ventilation at the bottom and ventilation at the top. So you shed the rain, but you let the sun and the wind in also, and the airflow all summer long. I did that one year. It, it, it worked very well until the wind shredded my strapping and plastic. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that type of method, um, I have a, a, a friend who is now deceased who would take uh, a roll of tar paper and staple it to the top. And he said the, the sun would make the edges curl up so the rain would roll off. The black would make absorb the heat so it got very hot. And he was. I've never tried that method, but I intend to sometime. Yeah. I'm a big believer in covering, frankly, not having just rain on it all the time. Well, and so if, I, and, I, I and put if, a piece of plywood over it so there's actually an air gap before it hits before underneath the. the and that, the and that would, yeah, that would certainly work. And if, uh, or if you can cover it when you know you're going to have a lot of big rains, and then uncover it, or whatever method. All right. Yeah. And, and one thing that, uh, oh, what was I just going to say? Sorry about that. Oh yeah. So one thing that I've run into when I've called uh, wood suppliers up is. They'll say, "Geez, this wood's been cut since you know, since for six months, mm. and we just we just cut and split it yesterday, and it's been felled for yeah. six months. But we just cut and split it yesterday, so it's all dry, ready to go. And uh, you know that yeah. that one really troubles I, me a lot. I, I experienced that myself. That's where a moisture meter can tell people what they're really buying. Um, I bu- I called the fellow one winter because I was running out of wood, and I and I said, "You're you're advertising uh, uh, seasoned hardwood." I said, "That's great." I said, "What length is it?" Oh, any length you want. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's in four-foot bolts. I'll, I'll cut it and split it. And I knew what I was going to get. And sure right. enough, you can if you see if you hear it sizzling and you see the foamy bubbles coming out the end, your wood is not dry enough, right. not even close. Exactly, right. All right, well, uh, I do just want to mention uh, on a different topic here that uh, it's 2020. Uh, and, in fact, the solar tax credit has dropped from 30% last year to 26% this year. Uh, a, a bit of a little bit of a disincentive for people to go out and do solar. On the other hand, the price continues to come down on solar panels. And I just saw that uh, Tesla has lowered the price on their panels uh, because of that tax rebate drop uh, by 8%. So, frankly, uh, I'm sure we will have a conversation and a program on this coming up sometime soon. But I still think that the uh, the payback, if you like that, the concept of payback is still on the order of, of 9 or 10 years. Uh, which means that your return on investment is uh, 9% or 10% uh, or 11% uh, per year, and where else can you get that guaranteed? So keep that in mind, and we'll talk about it next time. Thanks very much for Paul Casey uh, being the, Paul Carey being the the guest here today. Thank, Thank you for having me. This has been Power for the People, and we will see you next month.